This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I don't have any disclosures, but I will make a disclaimer that I am not a clinician. I am just a neuroscientist, so uh, I don't know how much wisdom I will be able to impart clinically, but I will do my best. The, the structure of my presentation today is going to be going over some of our current knowledge about girls and women with autism, some prevailing theories, trying to understand why there are fewer girls with autism than boys. And then I'll tell you a little bit about this longstanding study that um, that I've been working on where we're trying to understand different subtypes of autism and with a focus on neurobiology. So this slide is just to illustrate that perhaps one of the most consistent findings in all of the literature on autism is this skewed sex ratio of having about four boys for every one girl diagnosed with autism. So this graphic is just showing that as the prevalence uh, estimates have increased over time from one in 150 back when I got involved in autism research up to one in 88 and now one in 68, uh, this, this ratio of boys to girls, the sex ratio has remained remarkably consistent. Uh, what this means is that, uh, unfortunately, the vast majority of research study samples reflect this bias. Uh, usually there's about four to five as many boys in a study as there are girls. And so autistic females are, are pretty sorely understudied. In recent years, there has been a resurgence of research trying to understand how girls and boys might be different. Uh, and I think that that has been coming along and we are trying to include more and more girls and, and women in our research samples. So I wanted to summarize uh, some of what we know about behavioral differences between boys and girls with autism. And this is not my own work, but this is from recent studies, probably in the last five to 10 years, uh, so pretty current studies on trying to trying to understand whether boys, first of all, whether boys and girls with autism present differently, and then what those differences are. So some of the key findings are that um, the current studies are finding no differences in IQ. And I think this is important to highlight because some of the earlier studies, uh, those done by Lorna Wing in the 80s, uh, suggested that girls have a more severe presentation of autism, uh, perhaps presenting with higher rates of intellectual disability. And the modern samples, the current samples really aren't showing that. It could be a reflection of differences in diagnostic criteria over the decades. Um, but this, this notion that girls uh, are more severe uh, presentations of autism really, really doesn't hold up in the current literature. Looking at the core behavioral symptoms of autism, there are several studies that have reported that boys with autism have more severe restricted and repetitive behaviors. And I, I put this on the slide because this has been shown by more than one study now. Uh, and I wanted to highlight one of the most recent studies published in 2019 in autism research, where they looked at about 500 boys and 100 girls with autism. So that's not an uncommon sex ratio there. And they replicated the finding that boys, again, they found that boys have more severe stereotypies or stereotyped behaviors and restricted interests. But in this study, they also found that girls with autism had higher rates of compulsion, insistence on sameness and self-injurious behaviors. And this was over the age range of three to 18 years. 
Now, the authors concluded that uh, it was unclear whether this increase in compulsive behaviors and insistence on sameness uh, was, was really a difference in the presentation of autism, or it could have been uh, suggestive of, or it could have been a result of girls having higher symptoms of co-occurring psychopathology. So that still remains to be um, worked out, but just to say that it, it does seem that boys have more, at least their stereo, uh, stereotype behaviors and restricted interests are picked up on um, more than girls. In, social in the realm of social communication, fewer studies have found differences in early childhood at the time of diagnosis. So just comparing ADOS scores across boys and girls with autism, uh, there really don't seem to be any differences in the severity of those autism, uh, the ADOS scores. But there is some evidence based on parent report that as girls get older, uh, they, have, they tend to have greater social communication problems as they enter adolescence. And, and if you think about this, it sort of makes sense as girls are entering adolescence. It's just a different sort of field of social behavior out there and it could become more challenging as girls enter teenage years versus when they're younger. Um, this has been backed up in studies that have looked at the trajectory of autism severity, symptom severity. So now this is looking at uh, ADOS scores across time in the same individuals. So in our study, the Autism Phenome Project, we, we did a study looking at uh, how, how girls and boys are changing in their autism severity over time from three to six years of age. And what we found was that girls appear to be improving, meaning their ADOS scores are declining. They seem to be having less symptoms of autism severity across early childhood from age three to six. So that's, that's what we found in our study. We're currently following our girls and boys out into middle childhood and adolescence. Uh, so we haven't published this data yet, we're looking at it, but there are some other studies out there, longitudinal studies that suggest that that have also found that girls appear to be improving across early childhood, but they find that there's an inflection point in adolescence where this may reverse and girls then start um, having more severe autism symptoms. This goes along with the, the finding I told you before about how parents are reporting that girls have more severe problems in adolescence. Overall, girls are diagnosed about one and a half years later than boys. Uh, the average age of diagnosis in girls is about seven, whereas it's about five and a half in boys. And finally, I'll tell you about a study from that we recently did, finding that girls have increased symptoms of co-occurring psychopathology even as early as three years of age. Uh, this is consistent with other literature suggesting that girls with autism have increased symptoms of depression in adolescence as compared to autistic boys. So why are there fewer girls with autism? There are basically two prevailing theories that I like to think about or two prevailing theories out there. One is a behavioral theory, really suggesting that girls are simply underdiagnosed, that they're flying under the radar. And another theory uh, is called the female protective effect. That's a more biological theory that's based on genetics. And I'll tell you a little bit about that. But first, let me focus on this first theory about girls being underdiagnosed with autism. And one of the most powerful studies I think out there really comes from a study, not of samples of children with autism, because it's very hard to find undi undiagnosed girls with autism if you're looking at um, a diagnosis of autism as your eligibility criteria. So this was a population-based study looking at 15,000 twin pairs. 
and parent reports of autism traits at age eight. And so all of the parents scored their children based on high autism traits. And then the researchers broke up and looked at those who had high autism traits and then those who had the same level of high autism traits, but they also had a clinical diagnosis. And what they found was that the girls who had a clinical diagnosis of autism and high autism traits had higher levels of intellectual disability or other behavioral problems. Where there, whereas there was this high number of girls who had just as high autism traits, but they did not have a clinical diagnosis of autism. That happened, there were more girls in that category than there were boys. And what the authors concluded was that girls were less likely to receive a diagnosis of autism despite having high autism traits, unless there were additional problems there that sort of flagged the parents to bring them in for a clinical diagnosis. So this is sort of one piece of evidence suggesting that girls with autism might be flying under the radar. And why might that be? Well, there is a literature, a growing literature on this, this idea of camouflaging or masking symptoms in autism. What we are starting to talk about it in the field is called social adaptation or coping strategies. And this came from a couple studies from a colleague of mine, Meng Chuan Lai, uh, suggesting that clinical observation of, in clinic observations, so when females are undergoing an ADOS, for example, um, they tended to score with less severe communication deficits than males. So their ADOS scores were better. However, when they were filling out self-reports of their own autistic traits, females, those same females were scoring more severe than males. So there was a discrepancy between how they internalized their autistic traits and how they portrayed themselves to a clinician. And this is what led to this idea that perhaps they're doing some sort of social camouflaging or using strategies to minimize the visibility of their autism during social situations. Now, camouflaging is um, something I think that you might even venture to say everybody does. People with autism do it. Males with autism do it as well, but there is literature suggesting that autistic women do it more frequently and use more different strategies of compensating. Uh, so some, some examples here of compensations, of finding ways around things that are naturally difficult, so forcing yourself to make eye contact, not masking, is hiding parts of your autism, not talking about something you're really interested in, or assimilating, trying to fit in with everyone else just so you, that people don't notice that you're different. So talking to a stranger in a shop just because you know you're supposed to, not because you want to. And just to give some uh, examples of masking, I think perhaps one of the most famous autistic people in the world happens to also be um, an autistic woman, Temple Grandin says, the thing about being autistic is that you gradually get less and less autistic because you keep learning. You keep learning how to behave. It's like being in a play. Essentially what she's describing here is some form of camouflaging or social adaptation of, of living as if by a script um, in doing what you're supposed to be doing. And another quote that I really like uh, is from Summer Bishop, who is at UCSF. And she talks about doing an, an, a diagnostic evaluation in a little girl with autism. And she talks about a six-year-old girl who presented with really good social skills. She responded appropriately. She introduced herself, complimented Summer's outfit, politely answered all of her questions. And so Summer really, um, you know, this, this girl, this little girl looked like she had appropriate social communication skills. 
it was only when Summer saw her again a few days later that she understood her family's concerns. She made nearly identical overtures as if our action were part of a play she had rehearsed. So I think this is the one part where we can talk about, uh, and I've talked about the psychologists here at the Mine Institute who are diagnosing the girls in my study, where perhaps with girls, they just have to spend a little bit longer and dig a little bit deeper to really get at what their social communication can be like, or their deficits can be like, because if you just have an initial five minute conversation, they can seem like they're doing the overtures correctly, but then it becomes apparent sometimes that these are rehearsed and not naturalistic. And um, so I think it's important to, to consider that girls with autism may be using these social adaptation strategies more than males. And then what we really also need to consider is the potential mental health consequences of camouflaging or masking their autism behavior. And here are a couple quotes from studies done recently. Um, I'm more worried about making a social mistake than dying. I was tired of trying to succeed socially and making social mistakes, so I started avoiding people. These very important studies have found that um, that there are higher rates of suicidality, higher rates of mental health problems in individuals uh, that are engaging in this camouflaging behavior. So in one study of 59 autistic males and 99 autistic females, there weren't any sex differences in reporting whether they engaged in camouflaging, but autistic women tended to camouflage more across more situations more frequently and more of the time than autistic males. And camouflaging as measured by a questionnaire, uh, a self-report questionnaire of how much they were masking their symptoms and how they were behaving in, in social situations. Uh, camouflaging, the score was a unique and independent risk factor for suicidality in both autistic men and women. So these behaviors may seem adaptive and facilitate social inclusion, but they can come at the cost of elevated psycho psychological distress. And so I think more and more clinicians are talking about providing sort of wraparound services for mental health issues in, um, in so-called, or in, in individuals who are presenting perhaps with, with less social problems. So um, moving on to talk a little bit about the female protective effect. Uh, this is uh, something that you may hear about in the, in the general um, sort of news and things. And to me, it's something that's a little bit difficult to understand. It's also called the differential liability model or the multifactorial liability model. And you can depict it in this graphical form where you have a liability threshold and you have this population base of etiologic load, or in, in this case, what we're talking about is genetic mutations, but it could also be genetic and environment interactions, some sort of etiologic load, such that once you cross this liability threshold, uh, you, you cross that threshold into the diagnosis of autism. So I was trying to explain this to my daughter, who was part of my study, and she was maybe nine or 10 at the time. And she's like, mom, I don't understand what you're talking about. So I had her draw me some pictures to illustrate the female protective effect. 
And so what you can think about is you have a little boy and he's carrying this pile of rocks in this picture. And you can think of each rock as an etiological hit. So whether it's a genetic mutation or some sort of gene environment interaction uh, that's happening. And this little boy can carry, withstand as many etiological hits until he can't. And then he crosses this threshold into a diagnosis of autism. It's all a continuum, but there's a, point, a breaking point, so to say. Uh, in girls, if you think about a female protective effect in this diagram here, you can think about the whole curve of females being shifted to the left further away from the liability threshold. Or you can think about it in terms of having something protective. In this case, in this simple analogy, it's baskets. This little girl has baskets. She can hold more etiologic load. She can have more genetic hits. Um, before she crosses this threshold of autism. And this is one of the explanations as to why there might be fewer girls with autism because they can withstand a greater etiologic load and therefore there are fewer of them crossing over the threshold of, into the diagnosis of autism. Now, this is a nice theory, but there actually is some genetic evidence supporting it. And, and indeed, this is where this theory comes from. Some recent studies have shown that females with autism um, do indeed have more frequent and extensive copy number variant mutations than do autistic males, suggesting that they have this greater etiologic load. And in my area of research, the brain, um, what, what we're sort of inferring from this female protective effect is that uh, the, uh, we know that a lot of these mutations are affecting genes involved in synapse formation and brain development in some, some way or another. And therefore an extension of this female protective effect could be that there is an increasing or a different neuropathologic load, different changes in the brain resulting from these different uh, genetic mutations in girls with autism. And so this is sort of how I frame at least the biological theory of, um, of this female protective effect. So uh, with all of this in mind, um, we initiated the GAIN study at the UC Davis Mind Institute. It's called the Girls with Autism Imaging of Neurodevelopment Study. And this really came from a larger study called the Autism Phenome Project. Our original cohort was recruited from 2006 to 2011. We have uh, about 500 families involved. We start at the time of diagnosis at age two to three, and we conduct a lot of assessments in these children. The oldest kids in the study are now 19 and 20 years of age, and we followed them over five time points. The overarching goal is to identify clinically meaningful subtypes of autism with the idea that there could be more effective treatments or interventions based on what subtype you're in. Now this study, while, while it's really, it's a great resource, uh, we were the Autism Phenome Project, we were recruiting at the four to one sex ratio. So at the time when I started doing some of my brain studies, we had about 200 boys with autism, but only about 40 to 50 girls with autism. And so when I would see brain differences in boys and not any brain differences in girls, I really didn't know if it was because there were true differences or whether it was because we just didn't have enough females to find these effects. And so in 2014, we launched the Girls with Autism Imaging of Neurodevelopment Study uh, to increase the representation of girls in this cohort. And we were able to reduce the sex imbalance in the APP cohort. We now have over 100 girls in our study, um, about 100 girls with MRI scans at these various time points. And so now I feel like even though we still have more boys, we'll always have more boys, it's now down to about a two to one ratio instead of a five to one ratio of boys to girls. And so we can start to do some real statistics here. Um, 
as I was saying, we, we follow them across four time points. We're starting our fifth time point in adolescence now. We do MRIs, behavioral assessments, medical. Uh, we do medical history exam. We're looking at puberty now um, as girls are entering this nine to 12 year age range. I think that's going to be a really important uh, inflection point in looking for sex differences, both in uh, behavior as well as in the brain. And then we have blood so we can look at immunology and genetics. And this is just to show you our current uh, APP gain sample. This is our MRI sample. Uh, we have about 100 girls with autism and 62 uh, girls, neurotypical girls uh, without autism who we use as our control group. And again, the overarching goal is to try to identify similarities and differences between boys and girls with autism with the idea that we could, this could lead to a better understanding of etiologies more effective and individualized treatments and interventions. And also a big part of what we're doing in this study is trying to use early brain markers to predict outcomes. Um, because if you, so, so we have a big uh, emphasis on, on trying to predict co-occurring anxiety in the future because that is something that is treatable, um, but is often um, not unfortunately in, in people with autism. It's not treated, it's not recognized. Um, so, I just wanna tell you about one study that, that we've done using this cohort that's relevant here. And this was to try to identify, so, so again, the strategy is to try to subtype or subgroup the different ch these children with autism. And what I was really interested in was looking for a subgroup of children with co-occurring symptoms of psychopathology. And this really comes from the idea from that first study I talked about, that girls with a clinical diagnosis of autism maybe had more problem behaviors or something that was, was leading them to get this diagnosis of autism. Now, all of the girls in the GAIN study have a diagnosis of autism, so I'm not really able to look at the girls who don't have a diagnosis. But what I wanted to see was that if there was something different um, in, in terms of the girls who did have a diagnosis uh, in terms of co-occurring psychiatric or psychosocial and emotional problems that aren't the core symptoms of autism, but rather related to uh, mood disorders and, and other sorts of externalizing disorders. And so this is uh, based on the notion or what we know that approximately 70% of older individuals with autism have a co-occurring psychiatric condition. Uh, female adolescents and autism and adults with autism have higher rates of mood disorders and internalizing problems than males, but less is known about younger children. When do these symptoms emerge and are there sex differences in the presentation of symptoms at the age of diagnosis, right around the age of three? And then a second aim in this study was to look at underlying neural differences. So we looked at the amygdala. This is a structure that is an, implicated in many different psychiatric conditions, including a ASD. It's involved in emotion regulation and threat detection. Uh, it's a structure that develops on a different time course in boys versus girls in typical development. Um, and it also has a protracted development. It continues developing and growing into adolescence. Um, and what we wanted to know was that if we did find a subgroup with co-occurring psychopathology, would they have a different pattern of amygdala enlargement that maybe is predictive of, of future uh, diagnoses of psychiatric conditions? So at age three, they're not diagnosed with anxiety or depression. We're just looking at symptoms here. 
And so we use a data-driven uh, method to try to identify subgroups in this cohort of about 300 kids with ASD at age three. And we looked at um, the child behavior checklist. We looked at affective problems, anxiety problems, ADHD, and ODD problems. This is just an example of some of the questions on the CVCL. Uh, that, that, that score that load onto these factors. We also looked at adaptive functioning, cognitive ability and autism characteristics. And again, our hypotheses were that there would be a subgroup of children who had high symptoms of psychopathology and that this subgroup may also have deficits in other areas, particularly adaptive functioning was, was what I was predicting. We also predicted that there would be a higher proportion of girls than boys in this subgroup with co-occurring psychopathology symptoms, and that there would be a different pattern of amygdala enlargement across subgroups. So what did we find? Let me unpack this a little bit for you. Um, these are our four domains. We looked at psychopathology, adaptive function, IQ, and, and this is ADOS severity. This is a uh, these scores are different from the mean. So basically higher scores mean they're, uh, they're more severe problems. We found three different subgroups. Oops. One in red was our high psychopathology subgroup. It rep represented 27% of our entire sample. And if you just follow along here, uh, they had high symptoms of psychopathology across all of the domains that we looked at. So depression, anxiety, ADHD, and ODD. And they had slightly uh, lower scores, but not the lowest scores in adaptive behavior. They were right at the mean for IQ and their autism uh, severity scores were not uh, as, as severe as this green group here. We had a purple group, which was 40% of our entire sample. They had relatively low uh, symptoms of psychopathology. They had higher adaptive function scores, higher IQ and lower autism severity. So this is nice, this is 40% of our sample. But we also identified another group, 32% of our sample that had, had also low psychopathology, but they had pretty low adaptive functioning scores. So they had higher impairments here, a low IQ, and then a higher autism severity score. So next we looked at the proportion of girls and boys that fell into each of these groups. And what we found was that in this high psychopathology group, the red group here, 40% of the females in our sample um, were classified into that group compared to only 22% of males. So more than twice the proportion of girls and then males were in this subgroup. Um, where did they come from? They came from this purple group. So this purple group, remember, had low psychopathology, pretty good adaptive functioning, high IQ, and less severe autism. Uh, that was predominantly uh, overrepresented in the males about 45% of males were classified into that group versus only 31% of, of females. And then about 30% of each of males and females were classified into this more severe group who had low psychopathology, but pretty low adaptive function and low IQ. So when we looked at amygdala volumes, we saw that um, very quickly, I'll, I'll walk through this, uh, that it was only the group with the high psychopathology, that red group, that had amygdala enlargement relative to our typically developing controls. The other two groups did not exhibit um, amygdala enlargement. And this was in line with what we hypothesized because we thought the amygdala would be more associated with symptoms of psychopathology than, autism, than core autism symptoms. And what we found is that in girls, 
there was an association between problems internalizing and externalizing. I'm showing internalizing problems here. Uh, a very strong correlation between how big the girl's amygdala was and how bad their symptoms of, of internalizing behaviors were, whereas we did not see that relationship in boys. So this was suggesting to me that there are differences in what the amygdala is doing across boys and girls with autism. Very quickly, uh, take home messages from this study, even at age three, a higher proportion of girls with autism are exhibiting clinically significant behaviors consistent with co-occurring psychiatric conditions such as anxiety, ADHD, affective problems. Amygdala volume was more closely associated with these internalizing and externalizing problems in girls as opposed to boys. And I think that this has implications for early detection better of, of um, co-occurring psychiatric conditions better understanding of potential neural mechanisms, uh, perhaps sex differences in, how, in the, what the amygdala is doing. And all of this should lead to better interventions and treatments to improve outcomes later in childhood and adolescence. And I will say um, we have an abstract at uh, our autism conference coming up in May where we followed these, this cohort out to age five, six. And what we're seeing is that in this group that was classified with high psychopathology to age three, it seems like the girls are maintaining those high symptoms of psychopathology and primarily in the domain of anxiety. So by age six, uh, the boys who had high psychopathology at age three really don't have high psychopathology anymore, but the girls are maintaining, and if anything, it's getting stronger in the anxiety domain. Uh, we've looked at other sex differences, other aspects of neurobiology of autism that support that female protective effect um, I don't have time to get into those today, um, but just letting you know that they are out there. And then finally, just to summarize, this really is just the tip of the iceberg. There is a need to study more girls with autism um, in a multidisciplinary fashion. Uh, we really need sex balanced samples and I'd say representation across the entire spectrum. So we work really hard in our group to uh, include children at all levels of intellectual ability. Um, too often, especially in MRI studies, children with autism and intellectual disability are just completely left out because they're considered to be too challenging to, to put into an MRI scanner. Um, we have a need for longitudinal studies that span the lifetime, and we also need to evaluate gender variance and non-binary identities. And with that, I will end. Um, we want to understand the behavioral and neurobiological differences between boys and girls um, so that we can design more effective and individualized treatments. Just a quick thank you to my team. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.